Last week, we ended our lesson with, uh, about Simon of Cyrene with this passage out of Luke's Gospel. And it basically describes what Simon of Cyrene possibly had witnessed. Uh, that's one of the big questions. Did Simon, after he left the cross there at Calvary, did Simon stay and watch what unfolded? I personally believe that he did, and I believe that's why we have some of the information that we do have. But notice here, it was about noon, darkness came over the whole land until three, the sun had stopped shining, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and among the things that Jesus said, seven sayings in all, was this one, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and when he had said this, he breathed his last. We probably don't think much about what happened next. It's springtime, late March, early April. And so there's about 12 hours of light, 12 hours of darkness. And and Jesus has died sometime after 3 in the afternoon. And so according to Jewish law, he had to be buried before sunset. And so what followed immediately after this? Now, a piece of art that is quite fascinating is what's called the Descent from the Cross. Several artists artists back in the Middle Ages tried to depict what was it like for them to take Jesus down from the cross. I still remember when I was a student at Freed Hardman, June and I had just gotten married. We were living in marriage student apartments. And one summer, somebody knocked on my door selling Bibles. Now let me tell you a very simple fact. Never try to sell a Bible to a preacher. Okay? Don't do that. You know, that's like trying to sell a used car to Stan Wilson over here. I mean, you don't sell a used car to Stan. Otherwise, he's going to go out and analyze the whole thing. And I remember sitting there as this guy showed me this family Bible he thought that June and I needed so desperately. And he said, over in the middle are all of these paintings about the life of Jesus and he was showing me these paintings on the life of Jesus and he came to one and it may have been this painting if it wasn't it was one just like it and he said notice this one where Jesus's dad is taking him down from the cross now Jesus's dad was named Joseph but there wasn't one Joseph in the first century there were thousands of Josephs and, and after he left, I, you know, didn't have any money. We were college students at the time. But after he left, I told June, instead of selling Bibles, he might want to spend a little bit more time reading his Bible. It would help him in selling it. But, but we do come to a fascinating encounter that obviously Jesus didn't have because he had just given up the Spirit, but that someone else had with Jesus. We read about it in all four of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all record this incident. And even though you could take everything recorded in the four Gospels and put them on one page, what is contained in them is absolutely amazing. Here is the beginning of John's version that we heard a few moments ago read. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John... Holy Spirit wanted all of them to tell this story. But what's interesting is, is that when you begin to look at just that opening line in each of the books, it tells you something different. 
I mean, here's Mark's gospel, almost identical to what John says. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea. Now, first thing we know is that he is from a region just to the northwest of Jerusalem. If you look up on the mount, Jerusalem is down here near the south. And then just to the northwest, probably 30 miles or so, you've got Arimathea. Would have been a little bitty village. But this was the home from which Joseph came. And by the way, that's how you identified people in the first century. People didn't have last names. And so you'd always be named by where you were born or where you were raised. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he was known as Jesus of Nazareth because that's where he was raised. I would be Leslie of Ripley because Ripley, Mississippi is where I was born and where I spent at least most of my childhood as I was growing up. And you could imagine what your name would have been. You know, we could go around and all of us would, you know, get tickled at some of our names because of where we were born. But Mark goes on and he tells us something else. He wasn't just from Arimathea, but notice, a prominent member of the council. The council here is the Sanhedrin. It's the Jewish Congress. It's their court, all put together in one. And let me tell you that to be a member of the Sanhedrin in ancient Judea would be like being a senator or a representative today. I mean, that was a big deal. I mean, here were 70 men who were basically chosen from all among the Jews to come together and to give guidance to the Jewish nation. And Joseph is one of them. But not just one of them. Notice, he's a prominent one. He stands out. They know him well. And of course, it raises all kinds of questions. I mean, when when Mark tells us this, you're thinking, okay, if he's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who had just sentenced Jesus to death the night before, was he there? Did he get up in the middle of the night and head over to Caiaphas' house? To watch the show trial of Jesus? If he did, did he say anything? Did he speak up? I mean, the questions just come on and on and on. I mean, Joseph, if you're a prominent member of this body of people who had just sentenced Jesus to death, what was your role in it? And of course, we don't have an answer to that question. Matthew tells us this. As evening approached, there came a rich man. Remember the word prominent? Now we may know why he's prominent. Isn't it amazing what happens when you're wealthy? I mean, or if somebody even perceives that you're wealthy? I mean, it changes the way people look at you. I'm always intrigued by people who are incredibly wealthy, but who wear T-shirts, blue jeans, and drives old pickup trucks. By the way, I drive an old pickup truck, but it doesn't say anything about me, all right? But here was a man who was rich, which may explain, again, why he's where he's at. But then again, it raises more questions. How did he get wealthy? Inherited? Did he have a lot of land? Was he a rich farmer? Was he a big businessman? We simply don't have answers to those questions, but it says something about who this man is. And then Luke adds this to the description. Notice, he's a member of the council, and he's a good and upright man. Now, by the way, saying he's a good and upright man is like a preacher saying, I'm going to tell you a story, and this one's true. 
right? You hear that from a preacher and you go, no, wait a minute. Does that mean all the rest of them you tell are not true? You see, when, when Luke says this man was good and upright, it tells you something about the attitude of most people on the council. You see, if you knew anything about Caiaphas, if you knew anything about Annas, if you knew anything about those religious leaders' families, you knew that all of them were out for this right here. I mean, the priesthood in Jerusalem was so corrupt that Jesus went in the week he was crucified and said, how dare you turn my father's house into a den of thieves? Began to throw over the tables. I mean, you can see why Luke saying this about Joseph makes him stand out from the crowd. And then notice this, who had not consented to their decision and action. Now, I don't know if that means he wasn't there, or if he was there and they asked for a show of hands, he didn't raise his hands. Somehow, somehow, Luke says, he let it be known that he wasn't in favor of what was taking place. And I think the reason is what comes up next. I love what both Mark and Luke says. They give us an insight into Joseph of Arimathea. It says that he was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. And by the way, both Mark and Luke are almost identical in saying that. Here was a man who was so in love with the word of God, who knew what the word taught, and had especially studied the book of Daniel. You see, everybody in the first century who were into the book of Daniel could tell that Daniel had predicted four kingdoms. The Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And they knew that Daniel had predicted in the period of that last kingdom, the period of the Romans, God would set up a kingdom that would never end. Which, by the way, we're a part of this very morning, 2,000 years later. It was true. Joseph didn't know it at the time, but he was waiting for it. And then John says something that taints the entire picture. John, being the guy who tells the rest of the story in so many ways, he writes his gospel much later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, by the way, he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. He's rich. He's prominent. He's powerful. I mean, and he's afraid? Yeah. Rich, prominent, and scared. And of course, before you condemn him, you probably need to spend a few times looking in the mirror yourself. You see, what's fascinating about John's gospel is that John looks at fear and, and, and kind of follows it. That, that fear as it weaves its way through the text of John's gospel. John Micah, about three, four weeks ago, he, he talked about the man who had been born blind and the fear that was involved in that particular storyline. It actually starts earlier. I mean, if you kind of go through John's gospel, you see right off the bat, and y'all, I don't know how that is happening. All right. I do not know how to start. Stop that. All right. All right. You can stop it, brother. 
I have never figured out why right in the middle of doing something, my phone starts doing strange things. You got it stopped? Thank you. I told you this guy's good. Whew. Okay. Stan, how does that happen, me preaching? I've been preaching for 10 minutes. That is just, that blows my mind how that happens. So, all right. Embarrassing moment if you're online, I apologize. It sometimes happens. Uh, but, but fear in John's gospel, if, if you begin to go back and kind of follow it through the gospel, it begins about the last half of the first third of the gospel. First you have fear of being on the wrong side. Here they are, they're in Jerusalem, it's a feast day. And notice the text here, people are whispering everywhere about Jesus. Some said he's a good man, Joseph of Arimathea. Others said he deceives the people, the religious leaders. But notice verse 13, but no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. And so you see right off the bat, fear beginning to control the dialogue about who Jesus is in this gospel. And what people were doing is a whole lot of what will happen this next year. You know, next year will be midterm elections. And you'll have Democrats and you'll have Republicans and they'll be asking themselves who's running for, you know, senator, who's running for representative, who's running for governor, who's running for whatever the office may be. And what they'll do is this right here. They'll take and they'll lick their finger and they'll throw it up in the air to see, okay, which way is the wind blowing? And, and let me tell you, that's what was going on in Jerusalem. Everybody's licking their finger and putting it to the wind. Which way is the wind blowing? Is Jesus the Messiah? Is he kind of like Judas Maccabee a hundred years earlier? Is he going to lead a revolution to kick out the Romans? I mean, who is this man from Nazareth? And some were saying one thing and some were saying something else. And by the way, there are still people today who are licking their fingers and putting it into the wind. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? And then secondly, you had those who were so afraid of being ostracized if they came out in favor of Jesus. This was what John preached on. I mean, John Michael was talking about how here was a man born blind, Jesus heals him. They put him on trial, basically trying to determine how he was healed. And they call in his parents. And when his parents come in, notice we know he is our son. But then notice in verse 22, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. <clears throat> they were afraid because they had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Fear still controls the narrative. It's not fear of being put out of the synagogue. That's not a part of our world. But it is fear of being put out of your social group. Fear of being put out of the inside of the office group you work at. Fear that if you stand up for Christianity, you stand up for God, you stand up for the Bible, that your next door neighbors may not like you. I mean, we live in a world where more and more those of us who believe in God and specifically in Jesus are being pushed to the margins and attempts are being made to ostracize us. And we're going to have to ask us, our, ourselves a very simple question. Are we going to allow that fear to control the narrative? 
We go on in the story, and the third thing was fear of the loss of praise and prestige. You go to chapter 12. Many of the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge him. Fear of being put out of the synagogue, yes, but look at the last line. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Once again, the world we live in. Our students, when they go off to college, if you take a stand for God... Are you going to lose out with your friends? I mean, how many of us have been in situations of where we've had someone that was dear to us, and all at once they make a decision, a decision that we know is against the will of God? I think, I've, especially, and of course I deal with this all the time because of premarital counseling, so many people before they get married decide, you know what, I'm going to live together. And one of the things that I know John Micah does, and I do as well, is I have a conversation about that. I mean, if, if a couple comes in for premarital counseling and I know they've already chosen to live together, the first thing I want to talk to them about is you do know that what you're doing is dishonoring God. And I've had people to argue with me. Well, that's nothing. God's not against loving someone. He is if that loving someone is not according to his will. And so oftentimes, you know, we get caught in that situation. Hey, I got good news. Me and my boyfriend just moved in together. Well, congratulations. Really? Is that what we want to do? Or do we want to be a witness, light, in the midst of oftentimes what is ignorant darkness? Fear paralyzes us. I know it does me. And I mean, it prevents us from being what God's called us to do. I think of something as simple as fear of water. You know, when, when you turn back to John's gospel, one of the things that's interesting is in his discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus says that except one is born of water and the Spirit, he goes on to talk about the role of the Spirit, and he goes on to talk about the role of faith, but when you get over to Acts 2.38, you have the role of faith and repentance and immersion in water all coming together as our faith response to the gospel. You know, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we respond to that? And Jesus said, you respond by believing in me, turning from the way the world is living, and being immersed in my name so that you might have the gift of the Holy Spirit. I had a dad come to me one time, and he said, Les, I've got a problem. I said, what's that? He said, my teenage son wants to obey the gospel. He, don't, he only has one problem. I said, what's that? He said, he's scared to death of water. And I said, scared to death of water. He said, yeah, scared to death of water. He can't swim. He's never wanted to swim. He, I mean, he cannot put his head underwater. And I thought, okay, what do you want me to do about it? He said, talk about it in class. And so I did. That, that next Sunday, I went in class, and I began to talk to the kids in class. And I said, you know, I don't baptize this way. Okay? I mean, this is an example of baptism. And, and the, when I saw this picture, I thought, man, that water's going to go right up his nose. Now, if you swim, that doesn't bother you. If you're scared to death of water, it does. And so I told the kids in that Sunday school class, I said, here's the way I baptize. I have the person to grab their wrist, and then when I begin to move them back, they just hold their nose, and therefore water won't go up their nose. And do you know the next Sunday what that young man did? He obeyed the gospel. And by the way, that's not just true of young people. 
all of us who have baptized people know that there have been moments in which someone has responded older in life and the first thing they tell you as they respond is, by the way, I'm scared of water. And, and that can be a challenge. And, and so something as simple as the fear of water can prevent us from obeying the gospel. The, the fear of dishonoring one parent. Boy, this is one of the big ones. I mean, I grew up in, in a community where there were only a certain number of faith traditions. A lot of us did that. I mean, in Ripley, Mississippi, when I was a teenager growing up, there were churches of Christ, there were Baptist churches, there were Methodist churches, there were Presbyterian churches, there were Pentecostal churches, and that was it. I mean, almost everyone fell in one of those five or six categories. And, of course, what ended up happening is because those were the faith traditions in our community, they often got into arguments with one another. And that's all, those arguments oftentimes left people to say, you know what, I'm, I'm not opposed to you getting baptized as long as you don't get baptized in the, my aunt was told, in the Church of Christ. Her mother had experienced a lot of those arguments and had said to her daughter, don't you ever become, any of y'all remember the name Campbellites? Anybody remember those names? A lot of young people don't know what those are. But a lot of us who are older grew up hearing that derogatory name. And my, my, my aunt had heard it all of her life. Don't you ever become a Campbellite, a Campbellite, a Campbellite. But guess what? It had prevented her from being baptized in her own faith tradition. And it took her mother's death until she finally had the courage to say, you know what? I just want to obey God. I want to be baptized. Jesus asked me to. I want to do it. And you know, one of the hardest things I ever did with my kids was to teach my kids that, you know what, obviously your dad thinks he's right on everything. Don't all of us dads think that? We know better. We know that's not the truth. But we, we at least think that's where we are because otherwise we wouldn't believe what we believe. But I told my boys, I said, listen, if you, through the study of God's word and prayer, if you come to a different conclusion than your old man has, I expect you to follow God, not me. And let me tell you something. The moment they do that, it will unnerve you. The moment they say to you, Dad, I'm going a different route on this particular belief than you did, you'll go, why? And by the way, I did the exact same thing to my parents who did the exact same to their parents. Every generation does that. You see, my parents grew up that, that the Holy Spirit was simply a retired author that had retired to heaven and was just getting, you know, royalties from the book he authored. I'm, I'm being very serious. There was no gift of the Holy Spirit. There was no presence of the Holy Spirit. And I remember coming to my dad saying, Dad, what I'm hearing in Scripture and through my teachers is different than what I grew up with. But you know what? I honored my dad most when I followed God instead of what my parents wanted me to do. My mom grew to finally appreciate it, but when I was a teenager, I told mother I wanted to be a preacher. She wanted to know, why in the world would you want to do that? And I said, Mom, I want to do it because I want to honor God. And Mom said, yeah, but you'll move away and I'll never see you. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that won't happen. But did she have to sacrifice because I was a preacher? Of course she did. I never lived close to home. But mom was willing to do that. Jesus said, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. But brothers and sisters, it's there. 
And then fear of giving up your idols. You know, if I were to right now ask you to take out a card in front of you and simply write on the back of it, what's that one thing in your life that is so difficult to get out of the way of you following God completely and totally? I suspect all of us could write down at least one and perhaps more. Things like the rich young ruler that Stan preached on just a couple of weeks ago who who had all of this wealth that he had very likely inherited and he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, you got to sell what you have, give it to the poor and then come to follow me. And he goes away sad. Why? Because he had great wealth and that wealth was standing between him and God. And let me tell you, fear of finally getting rid of that so oftentimes, again, paralyzed us. It paralyzed paralyzed him, and it does the same to us. So what do we do? How do we overcome the fear? Whatever it is in our lives that keeps us from being all that God wants us to be. And, and, And it's Joseph of Arimathea that tells us. This is Mark's gospel. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. I mean, I want you to notice that word there, went boldly. I mean, it's like what happened between Friday afternoon and Thursday night. I mean, Thursday night when they're sentencing him, where is that boldness? I don't know. But by Friday afternoon, whatever Joseph has witnessed, he's now ready to go to Pilate boldly and ask for the body of Jesus. And he takes it and he wraps it in a clean linen cloth and placed it in his own new tomb that he'd cut out of the rock. I mean, went so boldly that he said, I'm going to put him in my grave. You go just north of Jerusalem and there's a spot, this is a really old picture. Rodney, I don't know if you remember back when camels used to go up and down there north of of Jerusalem, but this is way back uh, many, many decades ago. But, but you see circled there what is called Skull Hill. And you can go there today, and just to the left of Skull Hill is a garden in which there were tombs carved into the side of that mountain. Now, this is a road going north of Jerusalem. This is a road that goes from Jerusalem towards Damascus in Syria. And for many people, and I personally believe the same thing, it was here that Jesus was crucified, not up on top, but down along the road in front of the skull. And, and, and it was there that I believe Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus along with Nicodemus, who had come to him earlier at night, John says, just to contrast where he is now. It's Friday afternoon. And Nicodemus has now joined it. And what you find that is so true is that bold actions have a strange way of emboldening others. I mean, I think back to my own conversion. It was Kevin and Philip the Sunday before who were bold enough to get out and step and come forward and confess Christ that told this 11-year-old kid that if they could do it, you can do it too. Boldness emboldens others. And when I think about Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. It's Passover afternoon. Where are you supposed to be at 3 o'clock? You're supposed to be at the temple sacrificing your lamb. You're supposed to be preparing it to take it home. 
You're supposed to be preparing to roast it so that your family can gather and celebrate Passover. And what are they doing? They are caring for the crucified Messiah of God. And they're doing it boldly. And we preach about it 2,000 years later because I'm convinced that not only did they bury Jesus, but they very likely witnessed his resurrection. He appeared to over 500. Would he have left out these two guys? Maybe. Maybe not. And we celebrate their lives all of these years later because they learned how to overcome fear and boldly follow Jesus. What about you? Are you ready to overcome fear? Are you ready to say, I'm not afraid of the water anymore. I'm not afraid of what my parents or my family thinks. I'm not afraid of what they think at the office. All I'm afraid of is the fear that belongs to God and to Him alone, a healthy fear that says it's time to follow Jesus, to put my faith in Him, repent, and be buried with Him in baptism. If you've never done it, don't let fear keep you away. Come right now as we stand and sing.